So I'm a mm. big believer if the government money is our money yep. <laughs> at the end yep. of the day, yep. building schools for Australian kids. Yep. should be using Australian products and circulating that money back through the economy so we can keep building better buildings and keep more people employed. And it's a whole flow-on effect. So I think manufacturing Absolutely. is a, a major part that's been missed in the Australian construction sector that we need mm. to definitely bring back home. What is up, everyone? This is Ronnie, your host of the Ronnie Osanyu Show. My number one goal in this show is to bring you some of the most amazing and accomplished individuals in the business world to share with you some real, raw, and authentic business insights. We sit down and talk in a casual setting, nothing too serious, yet we unpack some of the most incredible ideas, concepts, and best practices. So please, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Oh, and don't forget to share the love. Like, share, and subscribe. Gracias, amigos. What is up, everyone? And welcome to another episode of the Ronnie Asani Show. Uh, joining me today is Lee Rust, uh, co-founder, director of Safety Line Jalousi, is that how you say it? Louvre Windows, um, which is a family-owned, uh, Australian-owned manufacturing business supplying the construction sector, and you guys focus on windows, correct? obviously, yeah. um, with um, a specific focus of, or maybe a, you can call it a mission of um, providing air quality solutions with ongoing energy efficiency for, for the buildings that you provide the products to. Um, a bit about Lee, uh, you're, you're a passionate um, advocate for Australian made goods, which is something I've actually been thinking about as of recent, and I'd love to talk more about that later on with you. Um, Multi-award winning entrepreneur, father of three, and MMA fan, slash, you trained? Yeah, training. As well. And last but not least, two decades of experience in manufacturing. Um, is that right? Correct. Awesome. Welcome to the Ronnie Science Show, mate. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great. Um, I want to start right off the bat with talking a little bit about manufacturing. Obviously, this is, you know, um, your neck of the woods and you have a lot of experience in it. Uh, I don't know if you know, but I've I've gotten my bachelor's in industrial engineering back in the day. Okay. So I understand a little bit of manufacturing. Yeah. I'm not sure if everyone who's listening or tuning in is is as well, but like maybe we could talk about it from a high level perspective. Like um, manufacturing in Australia is not as big of a sector when you compare it to other sectors, right? Um, and manufacturing in general, in many other countries, have kind of, over the years, with um, the rise of, you know, how trade has become easier, you can import and you don't have to. And um, even in countries like the States and, and, and Europe and many other countries, they started to rely more and more and more on importing rather than manufacturing. Because one, it made economical sense. Uh, you can get cheaper products. Um, and also it was easier to do than back in the day. What I've realized, especially over the last year with COVID and you know the pandemic and thinking about the future combined with things like automation and artificial intelligence and being able to have, you know, like for example, in the auto automotive industry, I've seen how Tesla, I'm not sure if you have, but I've seen how Tesla, you know, um, streamlines the entire manufacturing process. I'm, I'm like thinking, okay, well, with 
more and more advances in the technology, you can essentially start bringing back manufacturing home. And so when I was looking into your bio, I was like, you know, this is something that you're an advocate for. And I, I'm kind of curious what your take is on it and why in the first place it was like something that you're passionate about and, and how do you see it planning out in the next few years in Australia? Yeah, some really good points. So, you know, first of all, I think pandemic has highlighted uh, a lot of things regarding manufacturing overseas with yeah. delays and, and all these kind of things. So that in itself is enough to bring manufacturing home. Yeah. I think the demand for quality products now is mm. a lot higher. Um, and that sort of cheap import yep. product is, is not so much sought after like it used to be. Mm. People want quality. They, you know, everyone has ac access to the internet. So it's very yep. easy to research what's good and what's not. Mm. And manufacturing in Australia means we can control what goes out. Mm. We're seeing the goods before they're shipped. So yep. th I think that's a, a major push for us, especially in the construction sector. Mm. Where codes are changing. Buildings are getting built better and bigger. Yep. So there needs to be a, a high-quality product here mm. and like ours windows there is lots of windows overseas that that come in imported that are defective or non-compliant so mm. compliance is a major issue and us manufacturing here means that we we are in line with all the codes and we mm. keep, can keep the standards really high so yeah uh, you know you're right i think importing doesn't necessarily mean you're getting a lower quality um it depends on who and where and how and all that stuff um, I'm sure there's a lot of imported products that are premium and great and all that stuff, but um, being able to do things in-house always gives you that level of control Correct. That, that you were talking about, especially with um, stricter regulations. Um, the overseas manufacturer might not even want to abide by them because they are trying to streamline their process to make it worthwhile uh, because they're not only producing or exporting to us, they're looking after many other markets. So if we have to do it this way and then, you know, this other country or this other, you know, importer might not necessarily need that, why would we do it? But if you do it at home, it's it's a lot more control. Yeah, and it's also about keeping the money onshore. You know, mm -hmm. we're building buildings in Australia for Australian people. Yeah. And then a lot of the money for manufacturing is getting sent offshore. So the circular economy is taken away. So Absolutely. A lot of the jobs we do, we work for a lot of government schools. So I'm a mm. big believer if the government money is our money yep. <laughs> at the end yep. of the day. Yeah. Building schools for Australian kids. Yeah. Should be using Australian products and circulating that money back through the economy so we can keep building better buildings and keep more people employed. And it's a whole flow on effect. So I think manufacturing Absolutely. is a a major part that's been missed in the Australian construction sector that we need mm. to definitely bring back home. A hundred percent with you. And uh, even if you look at like other manufacturing verticals, like I was talking about a little bit earlier about automotive, it kind of died out here, right? We used to assemble and, you know, um, make some, some cars and that kind of also died out. Um, I think there's a lot, that can be done in manufacturing in general in Australia. And I'm glad to see that you guys are focusing on that. So why don't we go a little bit into what you guys do and the story, how it all started and go from there. Okay, so the, I guess if we start from the story. So my story yep. starts a while back. Yep. Um, I'll give you the, 
quick version. <laughs> I mean, we got uh, we got all the time. So you want to go into the long version? Go. <laughs> so basically, I left school as a as a, a kid. Um, yep. My father owns a quite a successful manufacturing company, Vergola. Yep. And I left school and just figured that I would work for dad, mm. work up the ranks, take over the business, and and happy days. Yep. But that wasn't the case to be. I left school and dad said, "No, you can't work for me. Go get a job." <laughs> so I said, "I'll we'll okay. get a job with you." He said, yeah. no, go get a trade. So I went off and became a apprentice mechanic. Did cool. that for four years and realized that was definitely not my path. Not my cup of tea. <laughs> not my cup of tea. Anyway, went back yeah. to work for dad. Um, he, I got a job in the factory floor, mm. made me sweep floors, worked my way through the business to sort of a senior management level mm. and realized pretty quickly at that level that this was my dad's business. Mm. It was never going to be my business. Yeah. And the, that whole sort of fulfillment piece inside me was not there. Mm. I didn't want to just work under dad or under dad's you know what he had built yeah so me and my brother sort of just started looking around what can we do and i guess manufacturing was a a, yep. a natural progression for us being in the family already mm. and we went to france and found this uh, niche product which we felt fitted a, a market here that wasn't yet tapped into yep and me and him came back and started in a two-car garage with uh, just one lady in the office yep. and we've taken it from there so love it man so you really started from like scratch, scratch. We had, you had a lot of experience, but starting that business was like, you didn't inherit anything. You didn't like, you know, did you raise funds? Uh, I, I yeah, guess. we did. We raised funds okay. through through my father. Obviously, okay. he was our biggest yeah. biggest support. Supporter, but, yeah. um, but you could yeah. have raised it through someone else had that not been an option. Correct. Uh, I want to go back to you realizing that your dad's business was never going to be your business is going to be like dad's business. Was that a, a realization from the fact that you wanted to have the satisfaction of creating your own baby? Or was it a mix of things like you also felt that, because some people say new school, old school, you know? Um, and some people prefer not to kind of like, like go into that territory and just create their own thing because they have the also the, the the freedom the flexibility of going about anything they want when it comes to steering the ship i, th I think it was a couple of things i think the first thing was it very much felt like my dad's business and there was yep. a roof over my head as in yep. i couldn't go any further yeah and i just wasn't fulfilled and i had yep. this just like this inner drive i wanted to create something that was yep. mine that i could yep. look back in 10 years and say I, I did, did that. That's yep. mine, you know, on my own two feet. And I think that was probably one of the biggest drives. I just wasn't settled mm. being, you know, working for dad. And and that's how you know if you're a true entrepreneur or not. If if you're not satisfied and settled with just inheriting something. Because entrepreneurship is all about creating something. It's a, you know, and it's about making money, of course. But <laughs> but it's it's about creating something you know that's what in my view the essence of entrepreneurship that you are bringing something to life that never existed before through blood sweat and tears and, and and you had that in you you know you had the easy way which is okay dad's business established there's a path although he made you work for it which is the right thing uh rather than say hey you know he you're the managing director. You don't have any experience in the business, right? Um, but it was still like an easy path for you. But you chose to, you and your brother, to do something uh, together from scratch, which is 
pretty cool. So how long has that been going? Uh, so we're in our 11th year this year. 11th? God damn, man. I know. I mean, it, it's funny. It feels like yesterday. It does? <laughs> yeah, it does. Some ways, really? yeah. Do you still remember how it all started, like the, the first year, how, like, you know, I'm guess I'm guessing there was, like, every business goes through some struggles. But like, do you reflect back on, like, the journey, especially the first couple of years? It's funny. Just uh, three weeks ago, I've just moved facilities again. So we've moved into a 2,500-square-metre facility in Mona Vale, and we started in a 100-square-metre double garage. And at the start, I was putting ads in papers, yep. driving around, knocking on mums and dads doors trying to sell a window yeah. <laughs> yeah and now you know we've progressed to like government contracts and wow. standard items in most educational facilities and but it just the other day i said to my brother have a look at this like look how far we have come so it's that is amazing yeah the first five years are always really tough especially the first i don't know two or three but the first five are in general like if you make it through the first five years your longevity as a business is is like quite the chances of it surviving is quite high. Um, and the fact that you, in a partnership, like you've been together, like you you and your brother from day one have been working together on the business for 11 years now. Correct. That is also amazing. Because partnerships are not that easy. Like sometimes you have, even if you're brothers, like you have different ways of wanting to go about things. How do you manage, um, I guess, a partnership where, Sometimes you you don't, like I said, you don't have the same view. Like, how do you go about that? Yeah, well, it's, it's um, trying and testing, I guess, mm-hmm. to say the least. But being family, you know you have each other's back. And we yeah. always have each other's interests, yeah. you know, at heart. Even if we might not agree, we still yeah. know that the end goal is the same. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what we've learned over the years, it's about having, even though we both own the business, mm-hmm. we both have a role in the business. Right. And if his role is operations, that's his right. box he sits in. If my role is general manager, that's the box I sit in. So it's having really clear and defined roles and respecting each other's roles yep. as being employees in the business. Even though we own the business, but it's staying in those lanes Absolutely. and having that sort of respect. And I guess I'm lucky because me and my brother have been best friends forever. Yeah. Not only my best friend, my brother, and my business partner. So that's awesome, man. It is cool. Yeah. And and the fact that you run it like a proper business where you respect, like you said, roles and responsibilities. That I think that is pretty much the answer. Because you can have each other's back. You can, you know, love each other. You could be family. But if you don't have the that understanding of okay, what do you look after as an employee in the business, and what do I look after? Um, so do you focus more on the sales and marketing, like the front end? Correct. Yes, okay. I look after office admin, sales and marketing, and my brother oversees all operations. Operation. Yeah. Okay. And and so the you started by putting a couple of ads on, on like in newspapers and stuff. I did. <laughs> that's funny. I mean, not funny. That's interesting. But now that you look at it, like advertising has obviously changed dramatically. Correct, yeah. Right. I, I still remember so the first window I sold at Castle Crag to it. Yeah. I, I sold it. My brother said, "What are we doing?" I said, "I don't know. You got to go put a window <laughs> in." I said, "Really?" I said, "Yeah." <laughs> I put the ad, I yeah. got the business, you, you fix it. <laughs> and that's sort of how the role started back then. It was like I did the front end, he did the back mm. end, and we've just continued like that. So it's been yeah. good. And obviously that changed over time. But I'm assuming you, you were like, okay, the ad on the newspaper worked. Let's keep advertising there, right? Uh, sort of. The first few years were rough. It was 
I guess we tried to copy models that we were used to because right. my father's business is very much um, residential focused, like okay. mums and dads type sales. So yep. naturally I copied that because that's mm. what I, th I felt worked. But after about a year of that, we realised the product didn't fit that market. Mm. So we had to adapt and we shifted into trying to go to window fabricators and getting mm. the product sort of in their showroom. So letting them be agents for us. Right. And again, realised that didn't work. So then we started going to architects realized oh, okay this can work for us if we get mm. specified in on jobs then we're more likely to get more windows per job so then the the model evolved so yeah that's very interesting so you realize that in order for you to win the deals you have to enter the process a lot earlier correct yeah, by early. being looped in with the architect yes and that's something you would have never known if you haven't a tried to really got yourself in the trenches yeah like that's trial and error but that's also thinking like okay what do i need to do here and like understanding how the entire um process works and also the sales process if, if we're talking b2c um if you're an online fashion store your process is like someone finds you on an you know on a I don't know, Facebook ad or anywhere, and then going to the page, I'm making it sound simpler than it is. It's a lot more complicated now, but it's still someone hears about you, probably online, goes to your site, makes a purchase. You're in the B2B space. So your customers are, could be government, could be like, could be, I don't know, like commercial, different commercial entities. And so that process is very, very different can be up to a two-year process sometimes from design stage to the job actually going to site so our our life cycle of our sales cycle is you know two two plus years so when you're in the startup phase of business and you know you're getting a contract but it's not two years away until you get paid <laughs> and you're like i've got no money now i need money now what do we need to do to get the money to keep the business going until we get the big contract in two years it's a um it's a and scary process <laughs> yeah and and to make it even more complex because you manufacture, you're the manufacturer. So you have a lot of cost embedded into making the product. You're not just importing and offloading that to someone. So you have to worry about, okay, what's my sales forecast? But do I have enough cash to put in to service that big project? Correct. Yeah, we always have to be like six months in advance with stock and, you know, all the overheads are big. So running a manufacturing company is definitely not easy. Yeah. You can't just get the order and then get the goods. We have to keep the goods ready mm. so we can be um, fast to supply. And how does the forecasting work? Like, do you, do you pay too much attention? Do you put a lot of emphasis on trying to know what the next fiscal year is in terms of revenue and sales? Yeah, we do. So obviously we've evolved a lot over 11 years and there's yep. a lot of systems out there which track projects. Um, they track the stages of projects and if we know we're specified on a project, there's usually a, a completion date mm. but then we can, we can track where that should land in the life cycle for our orders and you know, we, mm. just, we just manage it that way. But when you get specified, does that mean you've won the order? Or it's, it's like 80, 90%? 
Uh, it depends on the way that jobs get contracted. So yep. in the construction industry, there's two sort of methods. One is um, architect specified and the second is design and construct where the builder takes the reins. Mm. And that can be a tricky process because yep. they're always looking to, I guess, get the best value for their client. Yep. And that can mean sometimes cutting out you know, yep. high, high value products. Mm. So it's not as easy as getting specified and um, and yep. sitting back and waiting for the order. It's a, it's a process. You have, yep. to, you have to follow it through. You have to make sure everyone's aware mm. and you have to drive it till the end. Yep. So I want to touch a little bit about selling since you're the guy who looks after the sales part as well. Um, and selling in B2B is completely different and also depending on what the sector is. Um, what Were there any lessons... Uh, learned along the way when it comes to, and I know you just mentioned of you know that that tactical understanding that hey you need to be, um, you you need to be specified in um, with the architects and enter the process at a lot earlier stage, but from a selling standpoint, because um, like you said the process is long and there's a lot of touch points along the way, were there any specific lessons that you have kind of um, encountered? Yeah, probably the major one is, at the end of the day, the architect is employed by someone, be it a developer or government. Mm. So I guess my biggest lesson is follow the money trail. Right. Follow it back to government. Government needs to be aware of us. They need to be know why they should be using us, not just the architect. The architect mm. sees all the benefits. They know what products are good. But does the end user know? Mm. I think that's been our biggest lesson is making sure the very end user who has nothing to do really with product selection yep. is still aware so that down the track if we do go to get you know swapped out for another inferior product, mm. the developer knows, actually, no, I want to keep that product because it does right. X, Y, Z. Mm. Very interesting. Um, cool. So in terms of product positioning, and I know you you mentioned that you guys went to France, you found this interesting uh, product and you're like, okay, this is a niche, we can bring it back to Australia, we can manufacture that product and whatnot. But like any other market or any other type of business, there's competition, right? And maybe we can tie that to the, um, I guess, importing from overseas but also local competitors what are you how did you guys deal with the competition and um successfully position yourself and were you always looking into okay what else can we add to maybe a portfolio or how do we um improve the product or the perception of it or the quality like what were the main things that you were focusing on when it when it comes to like the product and the product position? I guess we saw a real niche in the market. There was a lot of louvers in the market which were very fit for residential projects. Yep. There wasn't anything that really fit in the commercial space. So we went really down a path of performance. So getting mm-hmm. everything tested, everything standardized, so that there was no arguments. You couldn't argue with, you can't argue with maths. So yep. our, our wind, our water, our air infiltration, mm-hmm. our acoustic ratings, all these metrics that are needed for commercial buildings we went and tested everything for that and made sure that our testing was of the highest standard mm. and that we outperformed anyone. So no matter what happened in the market, you didn't have to like us, mm. but you had to respect us because numbers don't lie. Yep. So that's how we positioned ourselves as a real performance 
performance metric against everyone else so that this wasn't a marketing argument it was a we're not playing marketing gimmicks here the numbers speak louder than anything else correct and right. the, the product really did fit that mold and it still mm. does it's still one of the highest performing louvers in the world yep that's an interesting angle so you're not trying to compete on you know necessarily aesthetics or or like they say beat around the bush you're like okay we're gonna compete on things that you cannot deny correct yeah and it, it's it's really worked well because I was, as i said earlier buildings are getting built smarter mm. bigger better more energy efficient so all these metrics are now so crucial mm. and the codes have changed in australia yeah so everyone is aware of these codes and everyone has to ad ad adhere to mm. them and so we're in a, a really good position now to to um put to the forefront what we've mm. done for so many years and and make people have that payoff yeah i uh, can't remember when but it was recent i read an article it was talking about some residential buildings you guys are just commercial generally yeah we fit okay. in the education space and commercial sector okay some residential buildings the developers are um, the buildings are like from the future like you're talking about um electric car stations in the parking so if you got a tesla you can just you know charge it in there um latest technology like crazy technologies that are in there so renewable um green environmentally friendly that is and you guys fit right into that and yeah. that's like what's happening in the next five years that's correct yeah the whole trajectory we're on at the moment is being green star you know, mm. sustainable we that's where the market's going so we need to keep up to survive mm. and we're looking at different ways to we're, we're sourcing different types of aluminium now where aluminium um, it's called a product called reduxa mm. where it uses a third of the energy to produce compared to a normal aluminium right so that gets a big green tick we're looking at smart air systems which we have in the market already which mm. monitors humidity co2 it monitors your air conditioning so what we're trying to do is get as much natural ventilation into that building to stop the use of mechanical air conditioning because right. using you're using those things it's costing you're spending you money energy. and it's costing energy which is mm. costing co2 emissions which mm. is the opposite of green star so that's that's our big push and our approach and we we feel that we're we're right in the, the market right so you're saying the the, si the window systems that you're working on or already have allows maximum ventilation correct so that it minimizes the requirement for or the need for you to to have more i guess artificial air circulation within the building correct okay and that's obviously done in a way where you're letting air come in so ventilation as an air coming in and out right so it's like full circle yeah, so if you've got a 23 right. degree day outside, yep. you shouldn't have any need for mechanical air conditioning because mm. the outside should be able to bring that air in and be comfortable. Right. And if it gets too hot, you should be able to close the windows, put the air con on for a minimal amount of time, stop, mm. open the windows and vent the building again. So gotcha. we're trying to make use the outside air in, so use all the free air possible because it's free. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So as a business... Obviously, I understand the the point around like Australian-made, um, manufactured here, stimulating the economy, as should anyone 
um, think, um, depending on where they are. But have you also started thinking about, or have you guys already been working to export? Or are you only focused on the Australian market? Uh, so we're heavily focused in the Australian market, yeah. but we do export now. So we've uh, we've exported into Papua New Guinea and Vanuatu and Fiji, New Zealand. So all the Pacific type islands. Yep. We've got a, a good reach there, and yeah, uh, we're getting some pretty strong uh, connections there. Yep. So yeah, the work will continue there, and a lot of the work there is Australian funded as well. Mm. Australian government does a lot of um, yep. military bases and, right. and hospitals and things like that. So yep. something we're definitely looking at expanding on. And I guess further than that, like into the Asian market and things, that's a it's a really tricky market. It's mm. very very price driven, right? And you, there's a lot of product over mm. there. So for us, I feel that's a it's a, it's a, yeah. There's definitely a challenge going into any new market, but I think your product is or even the business itself is niche. So it's built on the idea of being niche. You're not trying to sell to every Tom, Dick and Harry. You're focused on a specific product, a specific niche. Uh, granted, the more you can sell, the better, but um, you're not trying to sell, take over the 100% of the market. So even when you go to other markets, I would assume there will be certain pockets where you can, through, I guess, partnerships or business development, you can enter these markets. But there's a lot more, there's a lot of work over here uh, before you start thinking about going outside, right? Yeah, definitely. And, and just recently, after all this pandemic, the government's, I think, committed like $11 billion to, you know, construction sector and infrastructure and things mm. like that. So the Australian construction sector will boom and it will Absolutely. be big and there'll be lots of work for everyone. And I just really, as I said before, mm. I really hope that we start looking at Australian manufacturers and keep that those billions of dollars they're spending keep it here mm. and recirculate it so that the Absolutely. economy can keep growing. Yep. Awesome. Um, what, I guess, were, I know we covered a few of these, um, but were, were there any major entrepreneurship challenges slash lessons that you and your brother kind of went through or came across over the last 11 years that because a lot of a lot of the people that tune in, um, I guess a big portion would be entrepreneurs or people looking to start a business. So I guess they might be looking into you know, okay, well, Lee has established his business and grew over the last 10, 11 years. If there's something that um, I think would be a general lesson from an entrepreneurship standpoint that he can share. Um, that comes to mind. Yeah, definitely. There's a, there's a few, yep. sure. But uh, I think one is shit gets hard. <laughs> and that's the truth. If you, I you, like how you say it. If you're going to start yeah. a business and you think you're just going to put an ad up and sell millions of dollars worth of stuff, if you can, mm. please let me know. Reach out yeah. and let me know how you did it. But shit gets hard. You have to stick in there. Just mm. My dad's a, got a saying called stickability. You mm. need stickability. So you need belief. You, know, mm. you, you, you can't just push shit uphill. Yep. You, need, you need to believe in your product. You need to believe in yourself. It might sound cliche, but you really do. You need to have that determination, that drive. And mm. if someone says no, there's always another way. I can mm. tell you. Like mm. I've, I've been told no so many God, times. God knows how many times. But there's always another way. You know, there's three sides to every coin. There's the front, yep. back, and the side. 
but don't forget about the side or the edge. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when someone tells you no, I guess for me, no means one of two things. One is the product genuinely needs improvements and doesn't live up to the standard or the standard at least. Or it was just a wrong no. It was not the pro. They should have said yes, but something else was in the way. Maybe a, someone else got in before me, or um, God knows. Maybe they didn't even like me as a person. I don't know. Like it's either something wrong with the product or something else, right? And it could be that we just didn't educate the market right on what we offer. As well. So sometimes the messaging needs to be looked at. Like maybe they've missed the point that we do have all these amazing performance numbers, mm. but we didn't relay that correctly. So, yep. you know, that's something you need to. I think criticism's great. People yep. that say get all scared and worried about it. No, mm. accept it because it's a lesson for you and a chance for you to grow and make it better. Were you always, as a younger version of yourself, um, we always l- had that attitude towards no and rejection like when someone says no you don't take it for an answer and then you go back and you look at okay what can i do to get a yes was that always a mindset you had as a as a as a kid or someone like younger than who you are today yeah my mom will attest to this she's always said that's it's always been lee's way or no way it's i'm i'm her a to z child it's like if he wants it he'll get it he'll get it he'll do something so Mm. even from early days i used to play um like representative soccer Yep. I remember one year in my 14s, I, I didn't make the team. So I went mm. to another division out in um, like Western Sydney and played yep. out there in representative soccer because I still wanted to play representative soccer. So yeah. it's always been a... What, did you get labelled as stubborn? Yeah, stubborn. Yeah. yeah I got labelled as stubborn. So I, I feel like it's it's the, the mindset you have. When you're young, especially, you can get labelled as stubborn, but you really aren't. You You're just persistent. Stubborn is just a negative connotation when someone doesn't know you enough. You know, my dad used to think I was stubborn. And then until I got older, a few years ago, he goes, I realized that you were not stubborn. I realized that you were just passionate and persistent about what you want to achieve with your life. Um, and I think that is an absolutely important trait as an entrepreneur. That's a great trait. Yeah. It's a, probably a must have, to be honest. A must have. Absolutely. Yeah. Like imagine you're an entrepreneur and you get told no a few times and then you go back and you're like, oh, this is not going to work. Yeah. It's game over. Yeah, that's right. You're not an entrepreneur anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, okay, great. So dealing with um, no and going back to the drawing board and looking at how, how you can make it work. Um, and, and like you said, that could be educating your customer or the market. Um, anything else? that comes to mind around things that you've learned from an entrepreneurship standpoint? Yeah, probably one of the biggest things is like knowing what you do, like knowing your product or knowing whatever it is you do, but knowing where it fits. Mm. Like if you really can define that the market or the place that that product needs to be positioned, everything gets a lot easier. Like my, my journey with the, the residential and the fabricators and architects and then finding government and finding that my product is really purposely fit in education. That's where my product is best suited yep. and you hone all your attention in on that. So at the start, like all of us, we shotgun approach everything. We try everything, put our hands in 50 pies. 
yeah. once you can get your hands out of those pies and just you know have one mm. and really pinpoint focus it it's i think that's where the the growth and the the real you know flourishing of the business comes and you know why i think this is super inter- interesting because a lot of people assume that you have to find the niche on day one and most of the time you don't you you start somewhere you pick up a, a point in the entire map and you say okay i'll start here uh this is the market that i'm in this is the product okay cool and then as you keep going you get the no's the yeses the no's and then eventually you find that specific niche that that really fits and you know if you talk to a marketer and i'm a marketer they'll say market research understand your buyer personas understand who your target market is target audiences and all that stuff which is absolutely important but when you talk about entrepreneurship and starting out sometimes you can't afford to have uh to invest in you know proper market research and sometimes depending on the industry the data may not be accessible um so a lot of times it just comes with like getting on the road and actually finding out through trials and tribulations and you know like real life experiences yeah for sure and you, you don't know what you don't know you mm. have to talk you have to ask you have to be out there and, and take the feedback yeah you know, it's, it's just part of it yeah so where where are you guys in the next 10 years or five years uh, so our next our five-year plan is pretty exciting actually we've got a massive push with this sustainable green star approach we've got a few things i can't really mention yet but um sure pretty exciting stuff coming up we've got two new products we're releasing into the market hopefully later this year yeah um, which will take more of the commercial space for us yep and um just continue to grow really in the the markets that we know our product fits mm. awesome um but the whole idea of um or mission of being focused on energy being energy efficient that's something that will continue to to be your focus and like you'll add more into that space. Correct. Yeah, we want to make sure that the Australian construction industry has better built buildings. Right. I want to have longevity in buildings. Mm. I want my kids to go to schools which have cleaner yeah. air, natural yeah. ventilation, natural lighting. So the whole again circular economy, but I, yeah, we're very passionate about the Australian manufacturing. Yeah. Build, building buildings better. Mm. We should talk to Scomo next. We should should have Scott Morrison on the podcast. Let's bring him in. <laughs> Is there anything else that you wanted to kind of go over or discuss or share that we perhaps didn't touch on? Um, I think we've touched on a lot. I think any just advice out there to anyone coming up is just give it a go. Believe in yourself. Keep pushing. And don't take no as a no. That's, mm. that's all I can say. If you believe in yourself and you believe in what you're doing, yep. do it. Yep. Do it. And I guess if I can add to that is there's something powerful about time. So whatever you're going to provide or whatever product or you, you as an entrepreneur, you as someone who's starting out, um, you look at where you are now and then a year from now, you're twice better. But another year, you're four times better. So like, you know, they call it the exponential curve. Like, you know, it's almost like you're 
in a plane. Not that I've seen one for a very long time. Um, but um, you're in a plane and you're on the runway. And the first thing that the plane does is after like the engine, everything goes on and they're ready. They keep like it keeps running on like on the ground for a period of time, like a couple of minutes. And it has to accelerate. But then eventually it just takes off. And, you know, when when you're in the plane, you don't exactly know when you're going to take off. You know you're going to take off. You have that belief. You have that confidence that you're going to take off. Otherwise, you wouldn't be on the plane. But you never know when exactly you're going to take off. And so that is something I always like to draw like an analogy of. Like as an entrepreneur, you have to keep accelerating until you're able to take off, but you never know exactly. You I know, love when. that. Yeah. That's, that's spot on. Yeah. And it rings very true to my journey as well. Yeah, yeah. So I think that I was just sharing that because for anyone listening or watching, you know, um, I've, I've only started the business, um, my agency, about three, four years. So my entrepreneurship journey is definitely not as long as yours. And, you know, you've kindly shared a lot of your insights in, in, in this podcast. But um, from my experience and also from the experience of a lot of people that I spoke to and have seen, that's sort of like how I like to think of it. Yes, yeah. well awesome, man. It was... Um, Lee, it was it was a pleasure to talk to you, man, and um, all the best. And I look forward to seeing you guys making uh, bigger dents in the Australian manufacturing sector and and hopefully export all around the world. Awesome, thank you, my friend. Awesome, man. Cheers.